knowing so certainly that it is done, that we say together, and so it is. <clears throat> Alrighty then. Well, for everyone who made it, <clears throat> made it onto the bridge, we are delighted that you're here. Um, most of us had some kind of trouble. Uh, it just kept asking over and over again for us to uh, enter our name, but if we persisted with it, <laughs> per Wendy's opening quote, we persisted, and that was the path that got us through. Uh, three or four times of entering your name and your pound key got through. So if you couldn't get through on the bridge, I hope you got through on YouTube. If you got through on YouTube and heard, heard what I just said about the bridge and you want to join us on the bridge, go ahead and dial in. I've got the entry and exit chimes muted down so you won't disturb anyone. All right, so this morning we're going we're gonna to kind of follow up a little bit with last week. Remember last week I talked about why just renew yourself when you can reinvent yourself? You know, what, why, why do that? So we see, we see life renewing itself in the spring, but we also have the Easter holiday that comes in the spring. And Easter is more than just renewal, right? the spiritual interpretation of Easter. We're going to go into that in about two weeks. But Easter is more than just <clears throat> renewing. Right? It's, it's more than just being born again. You hear this all the time, being born again. But it's being born again in the spirit. Right? It's awakening to a different dimension of, of life itself and of our place within life. And I think that that's most important. It's so easy to, to just look at, at the vastness of life. And in the, oh, when we were sitting here waiting for everybody to come in, we were talking about just being by the ocean and watching the ocean. It just amazes me how vast it is. I would watch the waves come to the shore and I would wonder how far, how far did they travel across the ocean before they got, <clears throat> they got to the beach there, Carolina Beach, and folded up on the shore. How many thousands of miles did they come? I read a book uh, one time, I think it was called Adrift is the title. The author was Stephen Callahan. And he was crossing the Atlantic in a, uh, a home-built 25-foot uh, sailboat. And he believes that at night he was struck by a whale cruising on the surface. And it just punched a hole in the side of the boat, the plywood boat, and it immediately went down. And he was able to get out and get into his, uh, his life raft, you know, a little round orange life raft with a tent on it and his supplies in there. <clears throat> but the, <clears throat> the line holding the life raft to the boat snapped in the, in the waves before he could get back onto the boat at daylight and, and get the rest of his food and water off. So he wound up coming across the Atlantic on a current that flows more or less from the Canary Islands to the, um, to the Lesser Antilles. I think it took him 70-something days. And, and he wrote this incredible story of just what it took to survive. You know, problem after problem he had to solve. He was, he was trying to spear a fish, and he actually punched a hole in a raft, and he had to keep trying to figure out how to, how to use a, a round cork to, to lash that hole closed. It was just amazing. But one of the things that he, he wrote that, that just kind of blew my mind is that f certain fish would follow the boat. As it, as it drifted, because the, the little boat would start to get algae and barnacles on the bottom, and the fish would eat that. And these fish came all the way across the Atlantic with him, thousands and thousands of miles across the Atlantic. He was keenly aware of how many days he was on that boat. <coughs> he, 
He was always trying to figure out exactly how fast the wind and the current might be carrying him and when he might expect to be able to, to see, um, see the shore. You know, as he was losing weight, as he was becoming dehydrated, he was trying to, uh, trying to catch rainwater and trying to, in a solar still, trying to distill seawater. And the fish didn't know how far it was. That's what got me. The fish didn't know. The fish didn't care. You see, the fish were just being fish. They were just living. They were just living. And he was problem solving. See? He was trying to make the stills work. He was trying to fix the leak in the boat. He was trying to figure out this. He was trying to figure out that. His intellect was consumed with the business of problem solving. And the fish were just being fish. They were just living. Right? So we want to kind of keep, keep that in mind. The principles of successful living is what we're talking about today. And I'm holding up for, for those on the bridge, I'm holding up a book uh, for the people on YouTube to see. It is a copy of, this. It's called, the book is called The Science of Successful Living. Excuse me, not The Principles. Dr. Holmes called them The Principles of Successful Living. This is The Science of Successful Living by Raymond Charles Barker. If you don't have this on your bookshelf, I highly recommend it. Barker is uh, one of my favorite teachers in the movement. The book is available new on Amazon for $11.1095, and I found it on Google Play this morning uh, in an ebook for 99 cents. So it's going to be one of the best dollars you ever spent if you want to buy the ebook. I prefer paper myself. I like being able to turn the pages and flip back and forth. So just a little bit about Barker, and then we're going to go into, into some of the ideas that he's talking about. Dr. Holmes has, has many of the same ideas in the Science of Mind textbook in the chapter that's titled The Principles of Successful Living. And that starts on page 266 of the textbook. And uh, all the textbooks are paginated the same regardless of the size of the type. They're, they've all been paginated the same so that teachers can reference page and paragraph. So Raymond Charles Barker, just a little bit of history. Raymond Charles Barker, um, I believe he was in San Francisco and he was studying to be a, a unity minister. And he was in love with a woman who was also studying to be a unity minister. This is my recollection of the story. It may be, it may be off one way or the other. But something happened to the relationship and they drifted apart. And he, he was just kind of devastated by that and didn't want to see her again. So he left unity and so he wouldn't have to see her. If he stayed in unity, of course, them both being ministers, they would have bumped into each other from time to time. So he left unity and he started studying um, science of mind with Ernest Holmes and, uh, and then went to New York City and he founded the first church of religious science in New York City. It's still there today. <clears throat> Now, at one time, um, he was, he was uh, holding his Sunday service in Lincoln Center, in the Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center in New York. And uh, it, was, it must have been quite an affair. I wish that I had known it at the time. I was, I was contemporary. I was living there when he was doing this. Uh, but I didn't know anything about science of mind, religious science, Raymond Charles Barker, or anything. But I actually have in my library, I have a couple of <clears throat> the big reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder reels, 7.5 IPS reels. 
And these are broadcast of his Sunday service. His Sunday service is broadcast over the airwaves on a radio station. And uh, someone in the church recorded it. And, and uh, one of our friends in Winston-Salem, one of the first practitioners I ever met, she was a student of Barker's and she gave me these tapes. Now Barker was very, very old school, I, I would say, in the way that he taught. If you think of reading and writing and arithmetic taught to the tune of the hickory stick, this is the impression I got from listening to uh, Mom Ave, we used to call her, when she would talk about taking class with Barker. But what he, what he would do is he had a drill, and he would have the students in the classroom answer the, the question, God is, or, or complete the statement, God is, God is, fill in the blank, God is. And he would start a, a beat going in, on the desk, you know, boom. Can, you can imagine, for those of us who are old enough to <laughs> have learned the multiplication tables <clears throat> with the teacher tapping the, uh, the hickory stick on the desk, you know, and we would go two times two is four, two times like that. And he would get that beat going. And he would say, God is. And he would point to a student. And they had an answer. And then he would keep that beat going. And he would say, God is. And he would point to another student. And he drilled into his students that they needed to really understand their definition of God. Right? And this is, we talk about this every year. We start every January. What's your idea of God? Because it, it sets the tone for your whole life. And he, you know, people would go, well, God is love, and, and God is peace, and, and God is joy. And he had them, he had them going, <clears throat> he had them going all around the classroom until, until their idea of what God is was kind of drilled into them. And he even talks about this in the, in the book, that his, his idea of learning is through repetition. It is through rote. If you keep telling yourself the same thing over and over, if you keep exploring the same thing over and over, you come to a deeper understanding of it. So this, this was, was kind of um, the way that, that Dr. Barker's teaching method was explained to me. And I find the same clarity in his writing. He's very direct. He's very to the point. He, he he puts it out there. <laughs> he, he says it. He says it bluntly. He says it plainly. And uh, and what? And, and I think a wonderful, clear. He doesn't get caught up in a lot of poetry. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with poetry, but he he's, that doesn't seem to have been for him. He was just very boom to to the point. You want a different life? You need to change your thoughts. That's it. That's it. Work with that. Stay with that. So <coughs> in this book, uh, Science of Successful Living, I, I thought it was a great follow-on for last week because a couple things. First of all, he says science, the science of successful living. Well, what does science mean to us? Well, to me, it means, well, there's, there's processes and there's formulas and, and there's repeatability. You know, it, the idea with the scientific process, <coughs> excuse me while I get a drink, is that anyone who, who repeats the experiment should get the same results. Now we have some problems with that in that it appears that the consciousness of the experimenter uh, affects the outcome. But in theory, in the scientific theory, 
The idea is that anyone who uses the same process should get the same results. So when he says the science of successful living, to me it implies, well, there's, there's some type of formula, there's some type of process, there's some type of rules that if we, if we learn what those rules are and we learn how to follow those rules, <laughs> then the outcome, right, the outcome of the experiment is assured. So Dr. Holmes puts it a different way. He says, you know, you, you, you can take paint. See, Dr. Holmes was more poet and artist. And he says, if you take paint and you mix two colors together, you'll get, a, you'll get a different color. You'll get a third color. He says, now exactly why that happens, <coughs> people, people speculate. And we don't have to know why it happens. We just, all we have to know is if you take this color and that color and mix them together, you get a third color. Anybody, anybody. Who does that? The paint doesn't say, oh, oh, Jim, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give you that other color. You don't like that color. I'm going to give you something else. No. See, there's a, there's a principle. There's a law, something that acts as law. We call gravity a law, right, because it's consistent. It works consistently. And what that, Dr. Barker and Dr. Holmes are both telling us is there is a way in which life works. And for those who will take the time to figure out the way that it works and work with it according to the way that it works, then those folks will get consistent results. <clears throat> In the introduction to the book, Barker says, you know, um, if you want to drive a car, you have to learn how a car works, at least the controls, you know. He says, now, if you're used to driving a boat, and you try to drive the car the same way that you drive a boat, you're going to have problems because a car doesn't work like a boat. I like to ride my motorcycle when the weather's nice. And, and one of the problems that, that people who ride motorcycles have is, is they're so used to driving a car that they forget that the motorcycle operates in an entirely different fashion, in an entirely different way. And they try to use the brakes on the motorcycle the same way they'd use the brakes on the car. Slamming down hard <laughs> with the right foot. <laughs> and it causes all kinds of problems. So if you're going to do something, you have to learn how it works. And you have to work with it. Right? So the science of successful living. Learning how life works. And working with life according to the way that it works. Now, the other thing about the definition that got me was successful living. Successful living. Now, this is much different in terms of understanding than we usually hear about success. Again, let me get some water. <clears throat> usually, when we, when we talk in our society about success, People talk about accomplishments, about about what they did or what they what they gained. You know, oh well, we won that game. We won the World Series. We were successful. We did something. We went into business and we made a lot of money. We were successful. You see, or we went to school and we got a degree, and that makes us successful. But he's not talking about that kind of success here. Now, he's not eliminating that kind of success. He's, you know, that kind of success comes in result, as a result 
of successful living, but the most important thing is to learn how to live. To learn how to live. See, and here's the difference. <coughs> in 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 the ex the opening treatment, I talked about the difference between being oriented towards life as life is a problem to solve, or life is a series of problems to solve. And much of our Western culture, based on the the uh, the supremacy of the intellect, it takes that orientation towards life. We're born into a world where, where we're just, <laughs> once we go to school, life is a problem to be solved. You know, we have this period of time when we're, when we're innocents, when we're, we're preschoolers, when we're children and we can, we can play. And even with that, it has, it has problems of its own, you know. We have to learn some of the basic things that we need to do in order to live. We have to learn how to drink out of a cup. We have to learn how to eat. We have to, we have to learn how to use the bathroom. We have to learn how to get dressed. So we have these kind of activities and problems and things that we have to learn. <coughs> Excuse me. But our childhood is also filled with a time of just creative self-expression. Just being, just playing, you know, and and I love to watch the children at play because they can immerse themselves into any world that their imagination creates. They can be doctors one minute and astronauts the next, you know. <laughs> they can be sailors on the seas. You give them a cardboard box, a big cardboard box, and watch all the different things that they can do with that cardboard box. <clears throat> spontaneously they are expressing spontaneously they are just living you see they are just living they are just being children and we lose that we lose that when we go to school because school has <laughs> the way that we do school here you know it's very rigid and conform uh, conformity is more important than self-expression we have we have to as children learn how to do things the way the school wants us to do them. So school immediately becomes a problem. We have to behave according, <laughs> according to their expectations. We go to school and we get a degree and then there's another problem. You know, well, what kind of job are we going to get? Or is it going to pay enough to, to make a living? We go get a job and then the next problem arises, which is how are we going to get a promotion or how are we going to get a better job or how are we going to make more money? How are we going to find a life partner? You know, how are we going to find a nice place to live? How, how are we going to have, <coughs> excuse me, a nice car to drive? And so on and so on and so on. And we go all through life like that, you know. And then we get, we get towards the end of our life and there's still problems to solve, you know. How are we going to divide up our wealth? How, how are we going to, who are we going to leave our money to? How, how are we going to make our final arrangements, you know, where, where are they going to bury the body or cremate the body and, and what kind of service are we going to have and, and we kind of go through life and we just look at life as a problem after a problem after a problem, <coughs> excuse me, to be solved. And we never really get around to living, <coughs> to being, to being that innocent. Uh, to being that child.
So Dr. Barker, in using the term successful living, <clears throat> is pointing out to us something that Osho mentions, which is life is not a problem to solve. <coughs> Excuse me. I had to open the blinds to get more light in here, and I think I stirred up some dust. <clears throat> life is a mystery to be lived. Successful living, to my way of thinking, is about being in that mystery. It is about living as that mystery. See, we don't, we don't think about the magnificence of what life is. We don't think about the important part that we play in the magnificence of what life is. We get too busy trying to solve the problems of daily living. We're riding, we're riding a rock around the sun, which is a nuclear furnace. It's 93 million miles away. <clears throat> it takes the light minutes to get from the surface. I think it's eight minutes to get from the surface of the sun <coughs> to us. It takes the photons of light a million years to get from the center of the sun to the surface. A million years ago, the sunrise you saw this morning began its journey. That is amazing. That is amazing. If you look at nature and you look at, if you just look at how the animals and how the plants, how, how, how they go about their business without conscious thought as far as we know, without worry, without fear, you know. They do lots of things. As I mentioned last week, they do lots of things. The sun comes up in the morning and the birds head out to sea and you don't hear them complaining. They're just being birds. They're innocent. They're living, you see. They are expressing what, what they came here to express. I, I love the line in the New Testament. It's a, it talks about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, you know. They do not toil, they do not reap, they do not sow, but they are adorned most beautifully. They're provided for. And all they are doing is being what they came here to be. They are living successfully. So then it comes to us to try to understand, well, what is it that we came here to be? Excuse me again. How do we live that which we came here to be? And as I mentioned last week, we came here as unique, individualized expressions of the divine life. That it, it created everyone and everything out of itself as its instruments of self-expression. We are a unique starting place for ideas 
to come through. We live in a mental, spiritual universe. I think that's the first thing that we have to work through. <clears throat> because if we don't live in a mental, spiritual universe, there's really no sense going any further. Right? Changing our minds won't change anything. Changing our attitudes won't change anything. So this is why in our first year classes, we, we focus on teaching the practice of spiritual mind treatment so people can learn an affirmative way to pray and then they can see they can see the results in their lives change they can see things change they see the results and they say ah there's something reacting and responding even if they didn't get that far if you look back at all all of the uh, teachings different teachings different religions different philosophies they are all telling us in one way, shape, or form, change your thinking, change your life. As you think and you believe in your heart, so it is. When you pray, pray believing in your heart, so it is. That's Old Testament, New Testament. Buddhism says, Buddhism says everything you experience is a result of what you thought. There's two ways to take that. One is thought is causative. And then the other is thought is interpretive. But nevertheless, living takes place in consciousness, not in the world of problem solving, in consciousness. Happiness is not a result of conditions out there. Happiness is a way of thinking, of being, of living. Spinoza says peace is not the absence of war. Peace is a way of living and of being. And that's what we're talking about, successful living. Living in happiness. Living in peace. Living in joy. So if we can come to our realization that we live in a conscious universe, and if, if you're not sure, I recommend um, Dr. Dean Radin has uh, written a series of books called The Conscious Universe. <clears throat> in which he explores all of these different topics basically to demonstrate through statistical analysis that there's something going on with what we would call the interaction of mind and matter. For example, people who can uh, focus their attention and change the outcome of a random number generator, things like that. There's a lot more detail in his book, but that's, that's the gist of it. Okay? Lots and lots of, of different um, analysis. So we live, in a, we live in a universe that is a mental, spiritual entity. We are mental, spiritual beings. You and I have the ability to control, to choose our thoughts and our emotions. And this is a second important point. So many people will tell you, I had no choice but to, to react this way. I had no choice but to do this. I had no choice but to do that. Even our system of justice <clears throat> depends on getting 12 reasonable people. And if they agree that they would have acted in a certain way, well, then that must be the way it should be. Right? And so much of what we, we pick up in our society is, is based on a belief that we as human beings are victims of our thoughts and emotions. We have no choice but, but to act out. We have no choice but to retaliate. 
all these different things and what we have to recognize is we always have a choice and even if we don't consciously choose we have made a choice we have made made a choice to accept things as they are so what dr barker is and dr holmes are both bringing us to is <clears throat> we're not talking about discovering that there's a power in the universe that responds to us according to our belief just for the purpose of getting more stuff. And Dr. Holmes very clearly cautions against that because that happened. And you'll see that if you go back and look at some of the books that were written in the early part of the century, even some of the movies that were made in the last 20 years, it's all about how do I get more stuff? You know, it's as if, as if the universe is your personal piggy bank and you just have to figure out, well, you know, I want, a, I want another car. How do I get that? And then you get another car, you solve that problem. You see, we're approaching the idea that should be a spiritual growth as developing a tool for better problem solving. <clears throat> so what they're telling us is, let's not focus on getting more stuff. Let's focus on living. Let's focus on living as the spiritual beings that we know ourselves to be. <clears throat> So here is, is kind of one, another important idea. <clears throat> it is the importance of ideas. The importance of ideas. <clears throat> Think of all of the material things around you as an idea taking form. Think of that. The car you drive engineers sat down and put it on paper or put it in a computer and designed it. Mechanical engineers figured out how to make it, how to bend the sheet metal, how to assemble everything in a perfect sequence. Production workers were trained in how to do the assembly. An idea of process was passed on to them. And eventually it arrived in your in your driveway. But if you if you think about it, the car that you drive is an idea or a collection of ideas that is temporarily trapped <laughs> in material form. Until you wear it out and it goes to the junkyard and it gets recycled. But that's all it is, is, is an idea. An idea has come in. An idea has taken form, an idea eventually, that idea will eventually pass on, be replaced. <clears throat> right? just, as, just as the horse and wagon was an idea, you know, the wheel is an idea. Someday these two shall pass. So think of the universe that we live in as a, <clears throat> a mental, spiritual entity in which ideas come and take form. Now they may take form through a, uh, a process that we can understand, such as the one of design and manufacturing and, uh, that I described with the automobile, but that doesn't change the fact that they are nonetheless an idea that has come into form. But then we take it back a, a, a deeper level on the spiritual level, 
And we want to recognize that you and I are ideas. Our bodies are ideas that have come into form. God said, let there be. That was the idea. That was the intention. And then there was. And then there was. So this is the creative process of the divine, you see. The divine doesn't have computers on which to design things. It doesn't have factories in which to build things. But nevertheless, it creates. It creates stars and planets and galaxies and universes. And birds and fishes and animals and human beings. The creative process of the divine is through intention, through choice, through will, through volition, intention. It has created you and I as an individualized place where we can, we can latch on to ideas and let them come into fruition through us. And the world needs ideas. I want you to think of, <laughs> of everything that's going on in the world today and how one, one new idea, one good idea can change things, can change things for the better, can change things in a manner that, that allows people to develop into better human beings. Remember I told you a couple months ago we saw the interview with uh, Matthew Ricard, the uh, French Buddhist monk, and he said there's two orientations to life. One is getting more stuff and the other is becoming a better human being. What are all the ideas that could come through that could make this world a place where people could become better human beings? A whole new way is only one idea away. So think of yourself and think of human beings as a vehicle through which ideas come into being. That's successful living. It is getting in touch with that creative process. And the science of that is, is that there's a way for us to do that. And the way for us to do that is to learn how to focus our intention how to cooperate with life the way life works. I want you to think of some of, of the, um, the great minds of, of our generation. Einstein was talking about the importance of imagination, creating within this thing called consciousness. Or perhaps another way to put it is to attune his consciousness, to receive the ideas. His theory of relativity came about when he, he used his imagination to wonder what it would be like if he could sit on a flashlight 
And when he turned the beam of light on, if his physical body could travel out at the speed of light, away from the flashlight. From that, from that desire to know, from that ambition to know, as Wendy put in the opening quote, from that intention to know, the answers came to him. Now, where did the answers come from? Did he create the answers in his mind, for lack of a better term? Or did the answers appear in his field of awareness? That's my preferred way of, of thinking of it. So we're very egotistical in our world. We think, I have to think of the answer. But we don't even know how we think. We don't even know what a thought is. You say, well, you know, a, a thought is when some, some type of a neuron or electron or something in the brain fires off. Really? Is that the thought or is that the result of the thought? We don't know what thinking is. We don't know what consciousness is, but we use it. We use it. We experience it. Tesla's method of inventing was, was different. Now, I want to caution you. There's a lot of things written about Tesla, and, and I would imagine most of it's not true. They've turned him into some type of a, um, a weird cult figure. And, and in part, that was deliberate. In part, that was a smear campaign to, um, to discredit his ideas by his competitors. His competitors trying to discredit his ideas. But he said that the invention was more of a revelation he had something that he wanted to know. He had something he was thinking about. He had something he was focusing on. And then the answer to that just revealed itself in its entirety. He said it wasn't like an iterative process where he discovered one thing and led to another and led to another. Think of how Edison experimented in his applied science. <clears throat> Tried 10,000 light bulbs before he got one that worked. That sort of a thing. In Tesla's own explanation, it was the answer was revealed to him in its entirety. He saw something that existed somewhere, somewhere in consciousness. He saw that. And then was able to capture as much of it as he could and write it down and do something with it. <coughs> Excuse me. We live in a mental, spiritual universe. The divine is all-knowing. <clears throat> the divine is all-powerful. There are ways and means of which we know not. And all of this information is available to us if we can attune ourselves to it. Rocco Errico, in his uh, book on the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, the title of the book is called Setting a Trap for God. And the reason for that, he said that <clears throat> in the Aramaic, the word for prayer had a connotation of an attunement, a, a capturing, if you will. And what the purpose of prayer, according to his explanation, then is 
we are trying to attune ourselves to that which already exists. Happiness, peace, joy, love. So as I mentioned last week, the animals have instinct. But we, we lost a great deal of our instinct. And that has been replaced with intellect, the ability to solve problems, to figure things out. And that's good as far as it takes us, but what I'm suggesting is we really need to get into our intuition and just be able to tune into what's already there. Tune into what's already there. On YouTube, there's a, a video um, of a conference that was held at the United Nations. And I believe the title of it was How Consciousness Shapes the Brain. Right? And this is, <laughs> this is something people would go, no, 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 the brain shapes consciousness. That wasn't the title of the conference. The title of the conference was How Consciousness Shapes the Brain. One of the speakers was a physicist named Henry Stapp, S-T-A-P-P. -P. You can find his videos on YouTube as well. And Stapp said, if you think of the way that, that quantum physics explains things, and I'm not going to pretend that I even understand quantum physics. I'm just repeating his explanation. We have things that, that don't really exist, but they probably exist. In other words, there's a wave of probabilities. There's a cloud of probabilities and when a human observer, when a human being wants some specific bit of information from that cloud, the cloud of probabilities collapses into all of these different possibilities into one specific thing that can be measured. Right? So this kind of gets to the theory of, well, and when we were kids growing up in school, we were taught there's protons, neutrons, and electrons. The electrons have certain positions and they exist in certain rings coming out from the center and all that stuff. And then quantum physics says, well, you know, maybe they're there, maybe they're not there. But when you go looking for them, they're there. But when you're not looking for them, who knows? It's Schrodinger's cat. So what Stapp is saying is, is again, his interpretation, there's all of these possibilities, all of these probabilities that exist in this quantum field, this quantum wave. And when a human observer wants to know one specific thing, like where is that electron, it provides them with an answer. Now I realize that's a very, very oversimplified explanation. There are probably others, but just hold that in mind. What is it that you want to bring through? What, if you could bring through just one idea that would give a greater expression to your own life, to the lives of those around you, what would it be? And can you believe that it already exists? The information you're seeking already exists somewhere in this wave of probabilities that we call the universe. And that if you can learn the formula of attuning to the way life works, the information you need will provide itself to you in a manner that you're capable of understanding. So Dr. Barker gives us the example. He says in 1932, which was, uh, you know, the years of the Depression, 
a, a lady came to him and she said, you know, I, I want to be able to attune myself to prosperity. I want, I want to get out of this poverty cycle. I want to be able to, to get some money going here and, and get my life back in order. Now, he didn't tell her, here's how to get more stuff. See, this is important. He said, if you could do anything in the world, what would you want to do? He was asking her what she had to give. He was asking her what she felt she needed to express. And she said, well, if I could do anything in the world, I, uh, I would be a pastry chef because I love making pastry. And he said to her, do you believe that there's a way for that to happen? And she said, well, you know, we're in the middle of a depression. Uh, all the bakeries are closed and people are just lucky to be able to afford bread and yada, yada, yada. He said, do you believe that in this infinite universe in which we live, there's a way for that to happen? This is in the book, by the way. And they did a spiritual mind treatment together, an affirmative prayer. That's your process. That's your tool. Whatever she needed to know would be known. Wherever she needed to go, she would go. Whatever needed to happen would happen. But she had this great gift to give the world. The gift of love through baking pastry. Right? And he says, a few months later, um, <clears throat> I don't know whether it was a flower company or, or something, they had a contest in New York. They had a contest for baking pastry. <clears throat> and of the thousands of people who applied, she was accepted as a contestant. She lived 400 miles from New York. She had a hitchhike to get there in 1932. And she got there and she entered the contest and she won. She entered the contest and she won. And as a result of that, was <laughs> offered a lucrative job as the head pastry chef for some club for the well-to-do, a club that never suffered during a depression. And it happened. It happened, you see. Now, anecdotes are wonderful. They inspire us. But we're not here just to, to take delight in somebody else's success. We are here to live successfully. We are here to learn how to tap into the creative ideas of the universe and allow something new to come into being through us and as us. What do you want to have happen now? Are you willing to apply the techniques that we have taught you? Are you willing to keep your mind attuned to the fact that the answer to your, to your question already exists and those answers are revealing themselves to you right now in a manner that you are capable of understanding? Are you willing to let go of the ideas that success is about getting stuff? Success is about learning how to live with life the way that life works. You are an integral part of this universe. The world needs new ideas. You are an instrument through which these new ideas can come into being. But you have to cooperate with the way it works. If you want to drive a car, you've got to cooperate with the way a car works. 
if you want to live successfully as a spiritual, mental being, you must work and cooperate with the way it works. So I invite you, um, go on Google Play and for a buck get a, get a copy of the ebook. If you're more of a page turner, go on to Amazon and get to Raymond Charles Barker's The Science of Successful Living. Check it out at a library, but read it. Read it as inspiration. Take your Science of Mind textbooks, turn to page 266, read Ernest Holmes' chapter on the principles of successful living. You're not here to solve problems. You're not here to try to figure out how to struggle from day to day. <laughs> you are here as God's instrument of love. And that love appears as new ideas come into the world through you.